0: Let's do it! Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. Main Man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual.
1: We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man. An interesting story. A very entertaining story. A very long, wonderful adventure.
0: Hello and welcome. This is episode 58 in our series exploring the history of Mainman, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The philosophy of Mainman's founder Tony DeFries was to allow his artists full creative freedom by providing the financial support they needed to fulfil their artistic visions. The Main Man team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques to generate media attention for their acts that set the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of 1970s rock folklore.
1: We didn't have any rules to follow. We would break all the rules. We didn't care.
0: Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople. Dana Gillespie, McRalphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, David Bowie, and Lou Reed. I was just writing about people I knew and where I come from. Transformer, I mean, I hit him over a head with a brick. But it's also energy, Transformer. In this episode, we're looking further into the recording of Lou Reed's seminal Transformer album produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson in the summer of 1972 during an incredibly busy time for the main man team and their main man, Tony DeFreeze. Tony, you talked a lot in the last episode about the importance of the session musos that David and Rono brought in, particularly Herbie Flowers, who, by the way, mentioned that he came up with that now classic bass line from Walk on the Wild Side, primarily so he could get paid twice, once for each of the basses that he played, his electric Fender and his acoustic bass. Is that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah.
0: That used to happen a lot back in the day.
1: Yes, actually, there was, a, there was a session where I think Visconti was recording something and he didn't really need Rick Wakeman to play on it. Uh, and he got, he got Rick to play on it simply so that Rick could get paid for the session.
0: Yeah, that was for Mark Bolan when recording Get It On at Trident Studios. Rick owed £8 for his rent that week. So Visconti paid him the union session fee of £9, and he'd still have a little bit left over so he could go to the pub.
1: Yeah, that did happen. That did happen quite a lot. And like I say, because although session payments weren't large, the, the fact that you would get your £8 or your £16, whatever it was, it was something in that order... And it was certain payment as opposed to having to rely on the uncertainty of going on the road and maybe, maybe not getting paid. And that's why you had so many good musicians who were willing to spend time in the studio. I mean, if you look at Mickey Most, he used what were then the Yardbirds almost exclusively on a whole bunch of recordings. That's before they became Zeppelin. But Jimmy and John, and especially Jimmy and Robert, he used them all the time together. But also when Bonham came on board, he used him as well. So you had that constant ability of producers and a lot of other producers, people who worked with bands like Manfred Mann, for example, or the people i mentioned who worked with the Small Faces, what became the Faces. They knew they could use those same musicians over and over again. In Herbie's case on his walk on the wild side recording a much later group called a tribe called Quest sampled the baseline just the baseline from that recording and included it in their recording of can i kick it and then that has gone on to be used as a sample by a lot of movie makers, a lot of... I think it was used in a Super Bowl and was used in that Ozark series. There's a series called Ozarks, which is a very good American series. So it's been used a lot and very often it's the sample that's being used. We encountered that similarly. Remember Vanilla Ice? Remember Vanilla Ice? (laughs) A bit like a vanilla ice cream, a very briefly lived career as a singer. Ice Ice Baby sampled under pressure. Was actually a total <laughs> a total ripoff of Under Pressure, but never mind. And it briefly successful. But Under Pressure has been sampled a lot as well. And a lot of really, a lot of those songs from that era, from the 60s and 70s, not only were they sampled, but they actually began sampling because they took things like BB King and Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters. And each of those bands I've mentioned in one way or another. Whether it was the Rolling Stones or the Pretty Things or Floyd, they they put that music into their songs, and that influenced those songs in that way. So you've got all these English bands basically doing R and B or jazz or soul, but all American music really wasn't happening in England. But then it became rock music for the UK, and exported itself back to America, which is interesting, because the music had very often been ignored in America, and it became much more popular when it came back as a British-inspired music that really belonged to the Muddy Waters and Howling Wolves and other American performers and musicians and writers of the era. But that seems to be somehow the way it goes. Fashion gets made in a strange way. Fashion... Fashion can get made in Japan and be less successful in Japan than it is in Paris. And fashion made in England can get made in England and turn out to be less successful in the UK than it is in France. So that that is the peculiarity of music. It very often comes across for a different way in a different culture. The ability to get your music to be accepted globally, that's a much higher bar. I'd say we reached that with David. Not so sure that we ever reached it with Iggy or with Lou.
0: Throughout his early career, Lou took note of all the weird and wonderful characters who populated Warhol's world in New York when he worked with him. And he used them as subjects in his songs for The Velvet Underground and then particularly for Transformer. He was one of the first people to explore that world of non-conformists living a life way outside what was considered the norm at the time.
1: It did. It, it also sort of said, OK, look, if you... I think the way Lou put it was telephone, telegram, tell queen. If you're in New York in 1972, that's what happens. Anything you tell a queen is going to be all over New York in less time than it takes to pick up the phone. But what he was also saying was in talking about Jackie Curtis, in talking about she wasn't a girl or a boy, she was just Jackie, that's very much in line with David, who then goes off and writes Rebel Rebel. And he's saying, um, in, his, in his lyric, he's saying, can't tell if you're a boy or a girl. It starts off with, you've got your mama in a well, can't tell if she's a boy or a girl. <laughs> so he's got that whole idea of, you've torn your dress and your face is a mess, and, um, but I love you, hot tramp, he says. So he's taken what Lou was doing and made it easier to understand, given people who realise that they might be boy-girl, girl-boy, an easier path to actually accept that without having to feel bad about it. So in a way, I think um, it was very good for David to be exposed to Lou in a way, he got to translate Lou's lyrics into his own songs. He did the same with Iggy. Gene Gene is, you know, if you, if you look at uh, Walking on Snow White, that's Iggy. <laughs> so David got these, uh, if you like, New York impressions from these two very New York bands. Although, of course, Iggy was from Detroit and Lou was from New Jersey. So they weren't really New York at all. But still, they, they worked in New York, they played in New York. Iggy got strung out in New York. Lou got strung out in New York. So that meant they were part of the New York influence. And look what happens. Later on, you get the New York Dolls, you get people, and you get Aerosmith. You get all influenced by, essentially, these three folk. If you look at David, Lou, and Iggy, you can see Steve Tyler, you can see what's going to happen to punk. You can see what's going to happen to the New York Dolls. All of that is in the headlights of what we're talking about really in this 1972 trio. They're the trio that are standing in the Dorchester with me talking to the English press who have no idea (laughs) what is going on. And the American press, who are slightly more informed, but still completely bewildered by these three folk, David, Iggy and Lou, the terrible trio, did change the way people thought about music. They changed essentially the way that young people in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s thought about music. When you see the audiences, especially the girls, actually breaking down because they had just seen a Bowie concert but they hadn't got to touch David. <laughs> they were in tears because of this failure to make the actual contact. Of course, they couldn't all make the contact. There were too many of them, but some of them did. And that's, again, what, what Bowie got from Presley was how to make that tactile contact with at least some of your audience not all of them just some of them because those become your your missionaries they're your disciples they are with you forever that that's what he understood about performing and David hadn't really seen that about performing until he saw Elvis doing it and realized how strong it was and how he could do that himself and he began to do it very very well after that and it became a real signature of his to reach out and try and make physical contact with just the few people in his audience that he could reach
0: do you think you could make an album like ziggy or transformer as quickly and cheaply now
1: well it depends what you do if you look at making an album for a few thousand pounds which would have been a few thousand dollars in 1972, and you look at what that few thousand dollars is worth today, you can see actually that if you wanted to make that same recording on the same budget in the same time frame today, it would actually cost you closer to a million dollars. I hate to say it, but that's the truth.
0: It's actually very impressive listening to what Ken Scott achieved with the technology of the time, which was very basic compared to today.
1: Yeah, many of the recordings we're talking about, almost all the bands we're talking about in this era. We're on two-track or four-track. Eight-track was yet to be invented. Sixteen-track hadn't happened. And there were 16-track multi-tracks, but, I mean, ultimately everything had to come down to a two-track recording. Um, that's, that's something that made it uh, much easier, in a way, to say, OK, we get this done, and we get it done quickly, and maybe we don't use all 16-tracks. In many cases, they didn't. They used four, they used eight and then they could easily mix it down. Today, if you're looking at what happened before we got digital, you'd ramped up that to ninety six tracks and you could then spend months just trying to find the mix that you like. That was part of the problem, it was not the recording itself, but the actual mixing and engineering, when you only had two tracks to work with, that was Mickey. Mickey most said if the band can't play the tune I don't want them in the studio if you're in the studio you did it with the animals very successfully you have to be able to play the song end to end, no stopping no starting, no anything play the song end to end, I'll record it if there's anything I don't like I'll chop it out and put it in again he was an expert razor blade uh, chopper <laughs> And he made great records that way. But you couldn't do that. You couldn't do that in the 90s. You could still do it in the 80s. But in the 90s, you got to the place where you did have these huge tracks, huge decks, huge numbers of time that you were spent. So everything was multi-track. And then we've gone all the way back down to digital, where actually now you can make a digital recording... And you can add all the instruments and you don't have to worry about whether you can mix them or not, because you can mix anything in digital. So in that sense, it probably has got cheaper to go down, spend less time doing it. But for the Fleetwood Max of the world, remember, if I looked at this group of musicians, I would have included, for example, Christine McVie, who was very often doing backing vocals for a lot of these bands. She and Mick Fleetwood hadn't got Fleetwood together yet. And when they did, of course, it became Fleetwood Mac after you had Lindsay and um, Stevie. And then, then, of course, it got wildly expensive. All of a sudden, you had people going in and spending a million dollars to make a record. It was crazy.
0: Was there ever anybody from the record company involved in the Trident sessions, or did they just leave you completely to it on your own?
1: We didn't have any RCA people at any of our sessions, or CBS people, for that matter. We never had recording company people. Not that we didn't invite them, which anyway, we didn't. But actually, they never did come to those kind of record companies. If you're talking about Island Records, yes, uh, Chris Blackwell would often show up at sessions. But in the case of my artists, my recordings, I was the one who showed up. Listen, at the end of the day, I was the record company because whether or not CBS or RCA were paying for it, I was ultimately the one who was going to decide what it sounded like. I was the one who listened to the final mix and said, it's okay guys, we're ready, or let's do it again, or let's mix it again, or let's try something else. Because ultimately I was going to decide what would be the single. And that was true for all these recordings, and honestly it was true right up until David and I partied company, and then David got to decide for himself in terms of the new records, not the old, but the new ones, what he could do. But before that, and I think one of the reasons that it worked, was that somebody had to decide what is the record going to sound like, and which of the songs are going to be paired, in what order are they going to appear, and what will all be the single. And those couldn't be decisions that were made by large corporate record companies like DECA and RCA and CBS, because they'd be a decision made by committee, some kind of A&R meeting where you had 16 people sitting around the table swapping ideas about what should be a single. It's not practical. It never was. All the best of these recordings in this era were made by people who knew what they wanted to record, knew what they wanted to sound like, and were willing to go out and put their reputation on the line that this was the right song. Without those producers and those musicians and those engineers, you wouldn't have had those hits. That, that was the absolute truth, that no A&R person at a record company outside of possibly Herb Alpert ever really made a, a useful decision about what should or shouldn't be the single or what should and shouldn't be on the album. Musicians invariably did, and very often, of course, producers did. But even Danny Cordell, who really taught Visconti how to produce, and Shel Tormy, who probably taught Danny Cordell how to produce, they would know what they wanted the outcome to be, but they would let the musicians do what the musicians did because that's the only way it works, and that is the only way it works. I never, I never interfered with a musical decision when it was being recorded but I certainly would interfere with it later on if it was a matter of should we put this out as a single can we make it more than two minutes or two and a half minutes or four minutes because those were the decisions that had to be made by somebody who was going to actually get a record company to support it and promote it and pay for it to go on radio and artists weren't good at making those decisions on
0: their own. With so many great songs on the album, was Walk on the Wild Side always going to be the first single?
1: Yes. Yeah, it was always the strongest track on that particular album. And it was, and it was, it was his strongest song. Ultimately, it was his strongest song. That, that and waiting, waiting for the Man.
0: What was it that you saw and heard about Lou's music that gave you the confidence to say to RCA, OK, his first album didn't work, but leave it to me and we'll get Rono and Bowie to work on the second album and we'll make it a success.
1: What I heard when he was on stage, and what I heard when he was in the studio, was what actually gave me reassurance that it was gonna be fine. The Same way with Iggy, when I heard Iggy doing Roll Power, when I heard him doing Search and Destroy, there's no question that these were gonna be important songs, and that the songs themselves were good, and the production was, in Iggy's case, the mixing was horrible, because he didn't have any idea how to mix, and he insisted on mixing it, And so we had to get David to remix it with an engineer in California. But that, and a bit of it in New York, I think. But ultimately, that was Iggy's failure to actually understand the process of recording. It wasn't anything to do with the songs or the performance. It was more about Iggy simply not having any idea how music got separated in a studio. Whereas David did. David had learned enough from working with different producers and different engineers and making a lot of records. Remember by the time David made his first record for me, which was The Man Sold the World, he was already experienced. He'd already had multiple record deals and multiple made multiple records that had failed and worked in studios for a long time. So he knew more about it than many of his other artists. Lou knew about it, he just wasn't sufficiently cognizant to function because he had a lot of other issues going on at the time. But no, I wasn't ever worried about, is this going to be, even though ultimately it's taken taken Raw Power a very long time to become a successful album if you think about it that way. I mean, it's (laughs) not...
0: We've mentioned it before, but you can never overstate Ronnie's importance to this album and all those years working sessions, learning from people in the London music scene and being given opportunities were incredibly important. His playing is fantastic, but his string arrangements are also very beautiful and very evocative.
1: Well, yes, and and remember Buckmaster and Rick had worked with with Ronson and the three of them were exactly like that. First of all, Paul and, and Rick Wegman had worked a lot together. But as soon as they met Mick and they started, and they they heard, and he showed them what he would do, how he would arrange this or how he would arrange that, and they're absolutely in awe of the fact that he could arrange on the fly, that he could conduct a string section without any hesitation, that he could literally pick it up and put it down again without missing a beat. So they were, and I say that Mick's first album with David was. Man Who Sold The World. They had already made albums with David. They made Space Oddity. They made, uh, what was it, Man Of Words, Man Of Music, that album. So when Mick came into the picture, they accepted him again because they understood immediately that he knew what he was doing. He knew how to get this particular song, let's say, how to make changes sound the way it should or how to make black country rock sound the way it should, the way he did on No of the World. So there was a lot of mutual respect there. Mick was essentially very shy and was only really forceful when he was in the musical arena. Otherwise, he wouldn't wouldn't be, in a sense, uh, the leader. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't a front man. But when he was in a studio or when he was in a rehearsal situation, when he had musicians, he would immediately become a major force because he knew exactly what he wanted that song to sound like and that made him the person who was in charge.
0: Tony DeFries recording Lou Reed's Transformer Sessions from the summer of 1972. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from the Ziggy and Lou era on the Main Man Label website along with a huge collection of other historic documents including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that were adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.